I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. My co-host Naz unfortunately can't join today, so it's just me. We're going to talk about the war in Ethiopia. This week, as the conflict enters its second year, Tigrayan rebels captured two cities on the road south from Tigray. It's the furthest Tigrayan forces have got so far, within striking distance of the capital, Addis Ababa. A new frontier in Ethiopia's war. Rebels in Tigray say they are advancing further south, towards the capital, Addis Ababa. The federal government has declared a nationwide state of emergency. Prime Minister Abe Ahmed has asked all Ethiopians to mobilize and fight back against the rebels. One year ago this week, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed deployed federal forces into Ethiopia's northern Tigray region. Since then, a brutal civil war has killed thousands of people, displaced more than two million, and left hundreds of thousands in famine conditions. Famine is imminent in Ethiopia's embattled north, and hundreds of thousands of people are likely to die. That's how the United Nations is describing the situation here in Tigray. At first, the federal military, allied with the Eritrean troops and forces from Amhara, a region neighbouring Tigray, had the upper hand. But by June, the Tigrayans had rallied, pushing federal forces from regional capital Mekele and from most of the Tigray region. It was a stunning turnaround in the war. Since then, the Tigrayans had pushed southwest into Amhara. They have run up against resistance from the Amhara and federal forces. On their eastern front, they initially advanced some way into Afar region, but also had limited success there. They've got further marching south. This week, they took control of two cities, Dese and Kombolcha, only a few hours' drive from Addis. Let me be clear. We oppose any TPLF move to Addis or any attempt by the TPLF to besiege Addis. That was the US's Horn of Africa envoy, Jeff Feltman, warning Tigrayan leaders against a march further south. Earlier this week, Abiy declared a state of emergency and called on citizens to pick up arms to defend the capital. So, are Tigrayans gearing up for an assault on Addis? Today, Will Davidson, Crisis Group's Ethiopia expert, is joining me again on the podcast to talk about what's just happened and what might come next. Will, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Richard. Well, could we start, just tell us a little bit about what's just happened over the past few days. Tigrayan forces 
have been, as we heard, marching south and have captured these two important towns on the road to Addis. How has that just happened? Well, really, it's a continuation of um, you know the phase of the war that we've seen since July. Um, July um, followed the federal exit from June after this um, you know, strong resurgence from the Tigray forces. And for various reasons, because they considered the federal government to have enacted a siege on Tigray, because they had territories to reclaim in the west and south of Tigray from Amhara region, and also because they saw a continued threat to Tigray from the federal military and allied forces, they decided to go on this offensive. They faced stiff resistance on some fronts, um, but they also pushed hard um, in the end through eastern Amhara. Um, so they captured Waldea, another strategic city in mid-August. There was something of a lull in September. Again, you know, quite a lot, of, a lot of resistance. Then in October, the fighting resumed. There was a federal offensive to try and push back the Tigray forces. That didn't seem to make any headway. And it was after that, last month, that the, the Tigray forces pushed south um, and surrounded Desi and Kambolcha cities and, and are now pretty much in full control of them, um, to my understanding. Now, this positions them to potentially strike east to control the Djibouti corridor, therefore exert massive pressure on Ethiopia by controlling the main trade route for a landlocked country. Also potentially redirecting aid supplies from Djibouti directly to Tigray to overcome that blockade um, and, and, and famine relief. They could also push south from these positions and essentially try and you know, take over the federal government. So we'll talk in a moment about uh, what Tigrayan forces might do next, in particular the dangers of a, of a march south onto the capital Addis uh, in a moment. But could you just tell us a little bit, they've mu- they seem to have run into much fiercer resistance in western Tigray, this area that Tigray disputes with the Amhara. Uh, they seem to have run, run into much fiercer resistance there and to some degree in the east in, in Afar region. What explains the resistance there compared with their ability to move south? I think what's happened here is that where we've seen the, the progress through eastern Amhara, through what's known as North Wallow and South Wallow areas, I think this was the sort of path of least resistance um, as things ended up for the Tigray commanders. Now, when they made this decision to go on the offensive, they had those various objectives. Now, with regards to Western Tigray, that was certainly a core objective, you know, to re- reclaim territory they saw as theirs. But ultimately, that was, you know, the most heavily defended and fortified area which they were, which they were looking at. So we've got the Amhara presence there. That's backed up by a strong federal presence, but also um, a reportedly strong Eritrean presence. And the point there is that all of those forces, they want to stop the Tigray leadership getting access to that Sudan border and opening up an external supply line. So that was why they didn't go directly at Western Tigray in the end. And instead, they sort of opened up multiple fronts, first to reclaim that area in southern Tigray from Amhara. Um, and then they also sort of pushed southwest from that point and, and again, you know, faced some sort of fairly stiff resistance, although made significant gains. You know, took over Lalabella, the historic city, for example. Another front was you know, sort of southwest from the city of, of, of Shide to a road which approaches Gonda. Gonda is a major um, Amhara city. But again, you know, they, they weren't successful along that front. They made some gains, but you know, no, no real progress there. So that left this sort of more eastern section of Amhara, which they've punched through. 
because as you mentioned, you know, they didn't they didn't get that far in Afar, which is lowlands, and I think they were more exposed there. And then so steadily they've they've captured territory, gathered momentum, um, captured more equipment um, off of the federal military and their allies. Um, and we've seen a corresponding weakening of the federal operation. So I think it was a question of opening up these multiple fronts, putting pressure in different directions, and then waiting to see where the sort of underbelly of the federal defenses were. But this seems like kind of a critical underbelly for the federal government, right? I mean, as you said, getting to the Sudan border would have been great for the Tigrayans to open up supply lines. But this marching on the road down to Addis, this has got to be a major blow for federal forces, for the government. I mean, why wasn't there sort of more defense of this key strategic route? Well, yeah, it's a massive blow. And, uh, you know, they're in a very, the federal government and the military in a very perilous position now. I mean, I think we have to see this as a continuation of, of what we talked about in our, our last chat on, on the podcast. You know, the, the Tigray forces and the, the, the leadership, you know, one way or the other, they managed to build this very strong um, and fairly sort of you know, populous fighting force in the mountains in the first half of this year. They, they trained them up and they started those you know, hit and run attacks on the, uh, the federal and Eritrean forces. Then ultimately they were able to you know, engage in, in you know, large scale confrontations and, and push the federal military out of, out of Tigray. Now, I think the, the key to understanding this is just how demoralized and depleted the federal forces were at that point. And the, you know, the, the, the Tigray leadership, they took advantage of that. You know, they, they, they went on the front foot. But really for, for Prime Minister Abiy and his commanders, it was a question of, you know, how do we try and replenish the military? Lots of recruitment going on. You're trying to buy some new military hardware, including drones, we think, from, from Turkey and, and other places. But ultimately, you know, it was a federal military that was in a considerable amount of disarray. And they were fighting this Tigrayan force, which, you know, for right or wrong, consider themselves in an existential struggle here. Um, and, and there is indeed an incredibly critical humanitarian situation inside Tigray. Um, they've got these experienced commanders. They had a battle plan. They had the momentum. Um, and simply this you know, hastily reassembled federal military, the new recruits lining up with you know, various kind of regional forces and militia um, who were being chucked um, into battle here, they've just proven to be absolutely no match for this pretty organized Tigrayan force that, that has emerged over the past nine months now. How do people in those areas that the Tigrayan forces have just captured in, in the cities of Dese and Kobolcha, for example, in the surroundings, I mean, how do they view Tigrayan forces? I mean, they're, they're now a long way from Tigray region, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of you know these aspects. The story is 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 yet to be told. Um, you know, as has happened in Tigray, the, the telecommunications have have gone down as soon as the security situation gets very serious. There's a pretty limited flow of information coming out of of these places. Suffice to say, the TPLF, the political party that these leaders mostly belong to, we know about the, the degree of unpopularity that it has outside of Tigray for its you know, role at the core of the ruling coalition, the regime, the quite authoritarian regime that ruled Ethiopia for so long until Abiy came on the scene, really. Um, so we can imagine that they're not particularly happy about it, but it isn't really that the Tigray leadership is trying to win hearts and minds here. You know, this is the ultimate raw power struggle and so they're you know they're going into these these towns and these areas and they're establishing their security arrangements making whatever alliances they need to do with local 
characters um, and then I think life goes on as as, as normal so you know, exactly what's happening in those sort of occupied areas I can't can't be sure we could be sure there's plenty of opposition to the fact that the you know, Sigre forces are taking over these territories and indeed we should note there's been all sorts of allegations of atrocities against the Tigre forces um, that have been reported by various activist groups and the media I mean I think as with everything these these allegations need to be fully investigated um, but they've certainly spread the perception um, that the Tigray forces are exacting, you know, some of the type of abuse that was meted out to Tigray's population by the, you know, the federal Eritrean and Amhara forces. And again, let's talk in a moment about what would happen if Tigrayan forces continue marching south. But the other option for them, as you said earlier, is that they go east and open up a supply line to Djibouti, which would again, as you said, fulfil one of their core goals, which is getting humanitarian aid into Tigray itself. That's going to open some pretty acute dilemmas for Djibouti. Djibouti has pretty good relations traditionally with Addis Ababa, has, does a lot of trade with Ethiopia. I mean, presumably Prime Minister Abiy's government isn't going to look kindly on allowing supplies through beyond humanitarian, allowing supplies through to uh, to Tigray. Yes, for sure. I mean, this looks like an option. I mean, I, I can't be exactly sure about you know, the level of sort of reserves of the federal army that they've They've got to protect what is the absolute vital trade corridor for landlocked Ethiopia. But it certainly looks like a possibility. It does achieve those twin objectives of pressuring the federal government whilst potentially rerouting aid to Tigray. Um, but you know, we, we can't be sure at all about you know, how, how easy that will be. I think you know, what it would do to Djibouti's government is what it's doing to a lot of actors here, um, which is really forcing them to consider you know, just how strong is Prime Minister Abiy and his government's hold on power. Um, I mean, of course, it's it's correct that it would upset people in Addis. But, you know, as, as much as we, we see various international actors, including the US recently telling the Tigray forces to stop their advance, this is being played out on the battlefield. And at the moment, as far as we can tell, it looks like these Tigray forces are in the ascendancy and that there could be some shifts in the power arrangements in Addis Ababa in the near future. And so... Let's talk about that. So, so what would happen if Tigrayan forces continue marching south and how likely do you see that? It is, it is a bit hard to say, you know, speaking to people in the Tigray camp, you hear sort of real bravado, you know, sounding quite blasé about the prospects. Others seem to be more realistic views of the sort of political problems that this, that this entails. Because generally, t- tell, me, tell me if this is wrong, but generally the TPLF, as you say, Tigrayan ruling party is, is kind of widely reviled in, in Addis by many for its, its role, as you said, in, in, in many years of repressive authoritarian government. Exactly. And, that, and that's also particularly the case in, in Amhara region and you know, certainly something which has been exacerbated by the Tigray forces you know, capturing territory in Amhara, those atrocity allegations. But, but no doubt there is that un, unpopularity for sure. Um, so it presents a you know, major political problem in terms of what level of resistance would there would be to any new regime, of course that resistance will also be present just um, as they if they try to enter the city. I think you know, this brings in the other sort of key political opposition player here at the moment, the other armed movement, the Oromo Liberation Army. Now that brings with it its own political problems because the Oromo Liberation Army is seen as the more hardline end of the Oromo nationalist spectrum. Therefore, again, making them incredibly unpopular amongst Amhara. They they see these entities as having an anti-Amhara ideology, but also more generally against those who are against any form of ethno-nationalism. 
Um, but you know, it does give the Tigrayans some sort of political cover um, in terms of you know, maybe producing some sort of coalition for a new, a new interim arrangement. But that still means you know, because of the presence of the of the of the this Oromo nationalist force, it's still a very destabilizing prospect. The idea of of them trying to take a city, take control of a city of you know five six million people. Um, which with with a, with a population which we we don't know how hard it will fight, but we do know that it's very opposed to these political entities. So you know, hard hard to say, and I think that's what makes it seem more likely that this uh, the the Djibouti corridor will be the initial uh, focus of of the Tigrayan uh, leadership. There is another element here, though, Richard, which is that you know as the Tigray forces have advanced. Um, and especially recently, we've seen some very strong allegations against Tigrayan civilians for collaborating with the Tigrayan forces, um, and indeed some you know, deadly mob violence against them. We've even seen calls for concentration camps for Tigrayans and all sorts of um, so anti-Tigrayan hate speech and, and, and calls for ruthless approaches to be taken towards Tigrayan civilians. Well, just yesterday, Abbey's government instituted a very draconian sweeping states of emergency, which basically said we can arrest anyone and detain them throughout the, the, the states of emergency if we suspect them of collaborating um, with the Tigray forces and all sorts of other sweeping measures. Well, you know, that could lead to further mass detention of Tigrayans. Um, and if the idea takes hold amongst the Tigray leadership that we are really seeing something terrible in terms of the sort of punishment being meted out to Tigrayan civilians as a result of this situation and the Tigray forces advance, well, that might incentivize the Tigray leadership to push on Addis, even if otherwise they realized that politically it was not a particularly sound plan. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Oromo Liberation Army, the the, the OLA? Oromia is the most populous uh, region of Ethiopia, surrounds the capital Abi himself is Oromo. Could you tell us a little bit about how the OLA fits within sort of Oromo politics and, and, and why that's important nationally? As you'll remember, uh, there was years of anti-government protests that's kind of Abi kind of swept to power on that on that wave. They were to a large degree kind of Oromo nationalist protests. Uh, they were certainly centered in Oromia. There was there was definitely opposition to the TPLF and its power and the authoritarian regime it was at the core of um, but there were also just demands for you know greater or genuine autonomy for Oromia uh, Oromia is to get a fair share of federal power and resources there's a big dispute over Addis Ababa and whether that's sort of an Oromo city or an Ethiopian city and whether Oromia gets sufficient benefits from this federal capital that sits in the middle of the region and you know the, the one of the problems with the transition which has obviously ex- exploded was you know it's kind of the managing the, the, the sort of downsizing of the TPLF's federal power. That's obviously been a, a disaster. But the other massive problem has been this disagreement about how to accommodate that Oromo protest movement and the sort of more Oromo nationalist demands as part of Abbey's reform agenda. Now, obviously, there's a lot of backstory to that. But essentially what happened is that, you know, the Oromo opposition elites who were sort of nominally allied with, with Abbey and his sort of ruling party reformers, they fell out. And then when it came to election season, uh, first the aborted election and then the election that was actually run this year, aborted due to COVID. Well, the main Oromo nationalist opposition parties, um, either you know, the sort of standard bearer of the struggle, the Oromo Liberation Front, or the, you know, the party which had the most charismatic leaders, the Oromo Federalist Congress, well, they ended up boycotting the election. They said they were facing too much repression, offices closed, leaders jailed. Um, we had this very seismic 
uh, assassination of a popular Oromo singer, Hachalu Hundessa, last year, and then a major crackdown by the authorities after the violence that that, that assassination led to. Um, and you know, it, was, it was on the back of that that Oromo opposition parties did not compete. To get to the point of your question, what, what's happened here is that because of that sort of shutting out for whatever reason, of these Oromo opposition parties from the electoral process and from the more tran- from the transition more broadly, it's led to an upsurge in support for this rebel movement known as the Oromo Liberation Army. Now, that is an armed offshoot, a splinter group of the Oromo Liberation Front, which has been struggling for Oromo's autonomy for decades now. And now, it hasn't been particularly well organized. It's not as formidable and disciplined as the Tigray forces, but it is getting more popular as more and more Oromo opposition energy is channeled into it and away from the electoral process. Um, And now with the general sense of insecurity and the weakening of the government, um, it does seem to be getting more and more support. It's doing more and more recruiting and training and, and seems to have become a major political actor in its own right. We should also note that back in May, when the federal parliament designated the TPLF as a terrorist organization, you know, a, a trick that the TPLF government used to play on its political opponents, um, but they also designated the Oromo Liberation Army as a terrorist organization. The federal government has been you know, a- accusing the two of working together to undermine Ethiopia and the reforms um, for a while, and, and now, it's, now it's coming to pass. But what is, exactly does the alliance entail? Well, I don't think too much, especially when it was announced back in August. I think it's some basic uh, communication between the leadership. They have a shared agenda to overthrow Prime Minister Abiy's government. They broadly align on the federal issue. They're both ethno-nationalist parties. They want strong regions. They want ethnic identity to remain in politics, in administrative structures. Um, so they share a cause there, but obviously they, they share a kind of bitter political history between each other Um, and now I think we have to see because they're operating in similar vicinities um, as the OLA rebellion has spread to different areas you're not too far from Addis and as the Tigray forces move south so now I think um, it's it's crunch time in terms of you know what sort of military cooperation they can establish and what sort of political deal they can they can establish. And what about Prime Minister Abiy himself I mean this must have dealt quite a big blow to his government his his standing within his ruling Prosperity Party, which is a multi-ethnic coalition. How's this reverberated on, on him? Well, for now, the system is intact, as far as you can tell. Huge blows to the federal military, of course. But what I mean by that is we haven't seen like masses of defections and people speaking up and undermining the leader, whether from the party or the government or from the military. And partly that's due to these popular attitudes that we mentioned towards the TPLF and and the Oromo nationalist entities as, as well. So despite the problems, a bunch of people in Addis see the Tigray forces and in Amhara see them as a threat. Um, therefore, you know, people have, have so far stuck together. But that's, that's not the whole story here. Um, you know, for example, Amhara region, they have you know, sort of unsurprisingly become increasingly unhappy at the federal government's failures to defend and help defend Amhara region from the Tigray advance. And then you start getting allegations, oh, it's an Oromo prime minister, his generals are Oromos, you know, they're not really in it fighting for the Amhara. Um, So that certainly created some friction and and we could see those types of, of divisions grow. The other big factor, I mean, you know, the prime minister and his allies were on state broadcaster the other day saying, we need you all to sort of join this fight with whatever you've got handy because the federal military 
can no longer hold back the Tigray forces on their own. I mean, this undoubtedly is leading to a lot of concerns and, and loss of confidence in in the Prime Minister. I'm told that the Prime Minister is still not really registering the scale of the of the threat that he and his government faces. And I think inevitably, as the pressure is piled on by these military advances, also by the economic situation, the diplomatic isolation, we are going to see a lot of pressure placed upon the, the federal leadership. And I don't think it would be a surprise at all if we saw more and more you know, characters who were kind of nominally part of the, the system and supportive at the moment, breaking ranks. Because for many months, the war was actually, for all its horrors, it was actually quite popular in Addis, right? I mean, it, 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 Abby had a lot of support for the bringing the TPLF to heel and dealing the, the former rulers a, a blow. But so is that, is that starting to dissipate as people see that the war is not going well? Well, I wouldn't want to give the impression that any loss of support for Abiy and his, you know, perhaps his party and government, that doesn't turn into sort of support for the TPLF and doesn't, you know, wouldn't um, lessen people's pre-existing concerns and opposition about the TPLF and you know, aspects of its rule and, and ideology. I think that all still exists, but essentially this is being played out on the battlefield. And I think the reality is that a lot of the claims that the Prime Minister and his allies have made about the situation are now you know, very hard to, to deny that they've turned out to be quite hollow claims. So I think this is probably going to lead to that, you know, to, to a loss of support. But that doesn't mean any transfer of support um, to the Tigray leadership or to the Oromo Liberation Army. And we'll talk in a moment about the international politics of the crisis, particularly sort of Eritrea's and potentially Sudan's uh, involvement. But tell us a little bit about the humanitarian situation in Tigray, because it's still difficult to to get the required amount of aid in. So what, it was a few months ago that there were reported 400,000 Tigrayans living in famine conditions. Things don't appear to have got much better. So is it still very difficult to get aid in? And I mean, what are the main what are the main problems to doing so? It's, yeah, it's a massive cause for concern. I think that was back in July when the 400,000 figure came out. It's been, well, months since then, obviously. And a real trickle of aid. You know, they say they need sort of 100 trucks a day going in um, for the needs, but there's been nothing like that. They say only about 10, 15% of the required food aid has, has gone in. Um, so we can only imagine how serious the situation is. I think it's very difficult, again, for people to get information, to conduct surveys. That's partly due to a fuel problem. Um, there's been no fuel trucks going to Tigray since August. Um, and I guess you can imagine the federal concerns. They think that this is going to boost um, the, you know, the Tigray armed, armed movement. But for, you know, for whatever reason it is, that makes it very hard for the um, aid agencies to operate in Tigray, even if they're there. Makes it hard for people to do assessments and this type of thing. But it isn't just fuel. Um, you know, we still have you know, very limited. But actually, there's some electricity that's been sort of managed regionally from the the hydropower station up there. We have no federally provided electricity, no telecoms across much of the region. So an incredibly hard environment to conduct this, any sort of humanitarian relief operation in. And then we just have the basic fact that Tigray is still cut off from from trade. And again, there's only only a small trickle of of aid getting in through this one corridor or very kind of indirect route um, via via the capital of, of Afar region. So, you know, everything suggests that um, that these 400,000 people living in famine conditions has worsened. Possibly we do already have a full-blown famine in Tigray. But it's just very hard for people to make the assessments and, and, and to make that call. But, you know, absolutely, incredibly critical situation. 
And Will, what's happened to the Eritrean forces that were fighting the Tigrayans alongside federal troops in the first months of the war? There's a sort of constant, almost constant chatter of, of expectation that President Desires is going to recognise just how dangerous it is for him and his government if the Tigray leadership in this mood and with this force at their command manages to capture state power again. But quite simply, we haven't seen any significant re-engagement of the Eritrean military and you clearly can't be sure about why that is. I mean, it's maybe worth noting that in June, um, when the federal military, Ethiopian federal military, took such hits in Tigray, there also was a, the, you know, the, the Eritreans at that point, they kind of went missing. Maybe they saw the writing on the wall. They didn't really come to the federal military's assistance. They withdrew to protect their own positions in, in, in the north, on the, on the border there. So maybe it's a continuation of that type of, of reasoning that they just don't like the look of this. And as much as they would like to stop the Tigray forces advancing south, um, they, they just don't see an, an ability to do so. I guess more surprising that they haven't tried to distract the Tigray forces by some sort of intervention from the north. But again, there just has been no, no evidence of that. So at the moment, they're defending their positions along the, the border, obviously a massively disputed border with, with Tigray and Ethiopia in, in the north there. And then also the, 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 the critical element, which shows the concerns that President Isaias has, um, about this, uh, these dynamics with, with regards to Tigray is that they've adopted a strong position in, in Western Tigray to support the Amhara position there in effect, along with you know, elements of the Fed, Ethiopian federal military. And that's to prevent the Tigray forces not just taking that land back, um, but also to prevent them getting to the Sudanese border and opening up an external supply line, which would then present a massive threat to Eritrea. But it must be of huge concern to the government at times. You know, the Tigray, some of the Tigray commanders have said, after we've kind of you know, finished the job in Ethiopia, we'll be turning our firepower north. Because if you go back to some of that rationale for the Tigray position, they want to ensure that there are no future imminent security threats to Tigray. Um, so they, they cannot suffer a repeat of what they experienced in, in November and December last year. Well, the absolute you know, preeminent threat there is Eritrea's military. Hence, um, the, you know, a strong likelihood that this war will be taken back north at some point. And what about Sudan? I mean, we talked in the podcast last week about the, the coup. It appears now that Borhan, the coup leader, seems to be sort of trying to, if not walk it back, at least trying to trying to find a sort of way to share power again with civilians. But we were always worried about this, the risk, as you say, that Tigrayans look to open supply lines with Sudan, that Sudan, which already has its, you know, its beef with Ethiopia over the big dam on the Nile, over these disputed areas on the border, that Sudan somehow gets sucked in. Do you, do you still see that as a danger? And how do you see the coup in Sudan changing that? Well, in some ways, like not, not in too dramatic a fashion, right? Because so one of the things that the Sudanese uh, transitional government you know, partners could agree on is their positions with regards to Ethiopia. You know, they, they all want to see an agreement, a legally binding agreement on the filling and operation rules for the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Otherwise, they feel like a dam which could benefit Sudan. They begin to see the risks of it when they don't know what the Ethiopians are, have got planned. Um, and then with regards to the Al-Fashika territory, well, who in Sudan doesn't think that that's Sudanese territory. So there's no real difference between the sort of civilian military side on these issues. Of course, we could expect a slightly more hard line element from 
the Sudanese armed forces in Burhan, maybe a tendency to sort of you know, burnish national nationalist credentials with hard lines on these issues, but no real policy differences. So I think, you know, if there's a major consolidation of power by, by Burhan and, and associated elements, um, yeah, that would strengthen the position um, on, on these issues, particularly on the territorial, but there's already a, a strong position on that. Maybe if the military is incredibly distracted with um, the business of trying to you know, trying to sort of carry out this fairly ill-advised, ill-advised coup. Maybe that would op- give an opportunity for Ethiopia. But is the Ethiopian federal military and the, the Amhara forces, and it was the Amhara who mostly used to farm this land, are they in a position to do anything about it? I don't think so. You know, they're preoccupied with Ethiopia's civil war and these ascendant Tigray forces. So I don't think it changes the calculations too much. Instead, you know, the major next test, I think, for Khartoum Addis relations is going to be, you know, if the Tigray forces make a, well, it looks like they will at some point. They'll try and take back Western Tigray, otherwise get to the Sudanese border. How will the Sudanese respond uh, like the Djiboutians? Will they start seeing um, the Tigrayans as, as the ascendant force um, and the ones they have to do business with? Um, there's been some suggestion that you know, they've, they've not exactly been too stringent in terms of the activity, uh, Tigrayan military activity around the kind of refugee camps. So I think that will be the true test uh, when, when the Tigray forces turn their firepower to the West to try and reclaim that, that territory. And right now, neither side at the moment appears in the mood for a, for a compromise. Certainly, Abiy's language doesn't suggest that he's going to seek some sort of settlement. What do Tigrayan leaders want now? Initially, you know, for some months, it looked as though they were really just trying to open their humanitarian supply lines. But are there now sort of ever louder voices wanting a new government, wanting to topple Abiy? I mean, what, what would be now enough for the Tigrayans, if Abiy were to seek some sort of settlement? Well, it's a very dynamic situation. You know, there was just an interview by one of the top commanders, the Tigray forces, General Tzadkan Gubbala-Tensei. You know, he, he, he was saying similar lines that we've had from the other Tigrayan commanders, saying that this war is basically, it's over pretty much. There's just not much left of the, of the federal military. And you know, with that kind of bullishness in terms of their positioning, where they, there's just an increasing... Um, you know, reluctance to you know, to talk about kind of cutting deals with Abbey really, um, and so they so they talk about yes, an interim government transition, etc., coalition, but not with with Abbey. So this creates a massive problem in terms of the incentives for Abbey for those of us who are still interested in, in negotiated outcomes here, because you know the Tigrayans are basically saying they don't want him at the at the table anyway. Um, so I think that's that's you know, that that's where we are. Of, of course, it doesn't have to; it won't necessarily uh, break down like that. But I think there, there is a reality of a Tigrayan military ascendancy here, and I think so. The arguments that we've all been making, you know, whether it's the um, whether it's our, our, ourselves, any international partners, regional partners, you know, seek a negotiated solution here, no military solution. Well, I think the circumstances have changed, but that logic still holds. The last thing we want is the Tigray forces making some you know, dash for Addis with the Oromo Liberation Army and all the potential for state repression against Tigrayans, communal violence between Oromo and Amhara, Tigrayans and Amhara, um, as well as just you know, the, the sheer conflict and the destabilization that could come from a re- you know, an effort at, at regime change. We don't want that. But then there is a reality of the Tigray forces strong position at the moment, which I think necessitates the federal government to make some concessions, which it hasn't been willing to take so far. 
Um, the obvious one is the humanitarian situation. That's a core Tigray demand. We are on the offensive to overcome the siege. Well, if something is done by the federal government to lift the siege, would they at least pause this offensive um, and begin to engage in you know, some sort of process other than just pushing forwards militarily? Maybe because the situation has gone so far and we now have the involvement of the Oromo Liberation Army and its connection to the broader Oromo opposition movement, do we also need some sort of political amnesty? Um, the release of top Tigrayans, top Oromo figures um, to get things moving. It, you know, it, it looks like this is going to be played out on the battlefield, as I said, with those positions from the, from the Tigray leadership. But you know, possibly if the federal government, uh, federal authorities were finally willing to acknowledge some of the key realities here um, and take some accommodating steps, then we could perhaps still see a you know, recourse to you know, sort of negotiations here. And the African Union, what, last August, appointed uh, former Nigerian President Olesegun Obasanjo as its envoy for the Horn, but focusing mostly on, on trying to resolve this conflict. What should Obasanjo's main focus be for now? I mean, what should he try to be pushing on to try to avert, as you say, uh, a Tigran move south or yet another escalation of a conflict that really threatens to, to, to tear the country apart? Well, the, 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 yeah, the, the, some sort of meaningful federal concessions, I think, up up front on the issue of of, of the blockades, of restoring services to Tigray, really making efforts to facilitate aid to to Tigray, and then an accompanying push on the on the Tigray leadership to show some restraint here. You know, give the federal government a final chance to to respond. Um, I think that that has to be the play. But of course, you know, just a fantastically dynamic situation at the moment. All the calculations are going to change. Um, if the Tigray forces did take control of that Djibouti corridor. But I think, yeah, no, really, you know, given the sort of balance of power we have now, I think it's about impressing upon the federal government that you know, just this all out mobilization, you know, trying to get a people's war going to try and stem these these advances doesn't look like it's going to be the way to go. You know, that's been tried over the past month. And all we've seen is, is, is again, steady gains by the Tigray forces. So I think it really is the job of Obasanjo and everyone in the international community to just keep impressing on the federal authorities that some form of meaningful concession is needed here. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Great. Thank you very much, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of Crisis Group's work, including on Ethiopia, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at crisisgroup. Thanks very much to our producer, Sam Mennick. Thanks to Finn Johnson, who helps out with production. And thanks, as ever, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment. If you like the show, give us a rating or review. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and 
potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.